lose 50 pounds, my life would be great. And uh, this year, I did it. I lost 50 pounds in four months. Uh, don't be too jealous. I didn't even exercise one day. Uh, colon cancer. Who knew? Yeah. Yeah, colon cancer. I was diagnosed with colon cancer. I mean, it's kind of the most unluckiest thing you can hear. And But in unlucky times, sometimes you find out how lucky you are because I had no idea how many of my friends and family were experts on curing cancer. <laughs> because when I went on social media to announce what happened to me, my inbox was flooded with tips on how to cure my stage four cancer. Not one person suggested medicine. <laughs> not one. Yep, not one. No recommendations for an oncologist, not one, nope. In fact, one friend said, Kelly, I don't want you to be scared. My mom was told she had three months to live and she ate this soup and it cured her. And I know I was intrigued. Your mom was gonna die in three months and she ate a soup and it cured her? Come to find out she had chemo, radiation, surgery, and soup, and soup. <laughs> she left out a few details, left out a few details. ready for something a little different today. Here at Put Them on the Couch, I have a very special guest lined up for you. Today we're going to go into a journey through the intriguing intersection of comedy and psychology. For all of my new listeners, welcome to Put Them on the Couch. We'll be blending science of the mind with the magic of humor. Picture a stage, a spotlight shining bright on a lone figure. Armed with just a microphone and a repertoire of wit, comedy, an art form that plums the depths of human experience. And today, you're in for a treat as I welcome Kelly Spillman, a psychology professor with a knack for stand-up comedy. Kelly Spillman, everyone. Thanks for letting us put you on the couch today, Kelly. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Kelly, what made you try stand-up comedy for the first time? So... I had been in a very long-term relation that ended abruptly <laughs> and I needed to find something to do. Oh, wow. So I'd always loved stand-up comedy, improv comedy, sketches. So I took an improv class and I was really good except for one thing. What's that? When the audience asked me to do an impression or a dialect. I was horrible. Wow. So I decided, let me go sign up for a stand-up comedy open mic, and I'll just practice impressions and dialects. <laughs> but then when I actually tried it, that made no sense. <laughs> so I wrote actual jokes. And then I fell in love with stand-up comedy. Nice. Kelly, is there a recipe, you think, for a good joke or have you found a recipe for a good joke? So there is definitely a recipe and there's a lot of good books out there. 
I kind of stumble upon punchlines when I do it. I think I'm very good at knowing a situation that's funny, but it does take me a lot of work to edit and refine punchlines to get them, uh, you know, the best that they could be. Um, Yes. So my brain doesn't like write punchlines, I think, the way that a lot of other comics do. What do you mean? But one, like one rule is, if you're starting out, is just to write down things that you think are weird or funny or embarrassing Mm. or that really make you angry. And, you know, trying to find universal funny things because what you'll find out is what you find annoying or makes you angry or scares you sure is what makes other people angry or scared that's the key to it hmm. in all honesty and it's not easy to do <laughs> well that um leads me to another question i was going to ask what is it about comedy or joke telling that you think makes it so universally attractive? Um, what is it specifically you think that makes, you know, comedy so fun for the average person? I think it is finding these things that we all go through and being able to articulate it in a way that the audience hasn't thought about it's trying to find those aha moments with the audience. Mm. Uh, I, I think that's the key. Sounds like therapy to me. What, what would you say? <laughs> you know, it, it is. Yeah. And now that I've moved to LA in all honesty, <laughs> more so than most ever. comics out here <laughs> use, use their five minutes on stage <laughs> yes. to, to deal with their mental health issues. Right. right. <laughs> issues. Yeah. Well, that leads me to another question that I think other comics have been asked, and there have been a lot of flippant responses, nothing very serious, I don't think, and I wonder if it's because people are threatened by the question and or feel some sort of shame or embarrassment, Um, but I'll ask you, do you think tragedy or personal trauma make for better comedy? Do you think it necessarily makes a comedian better? Yes. I absolutely believe that. (laughs) So... I think I read in the past that a lot, a lot of times when people go through traumatic experiences, like to survive it, you need to find what's funny about that situation. Oh yeah. To remove yourself. Yeah. And I think a lot of comedians that is probably was their coping method. Sure. Because there is like this stereotype that comedians are essentially all trauma victims. Yes. (laughs) Or alcoholics or, you know, former drug addicts. Yes, addiction is Mm -hmm. very rampant in the comedy community. And so are mental health issues. Well, I was going to say, if I were up at midnight and beyond, and my grandpa warned me of this when I was younger, nothing good happens after midnight, he used to say. 
except maybe on the weekends. Yes. <laughs> but if I were out past midnight on a weekday, I would probably start drinking and doing drugs as well. Because I'll, I'll be honest, I would probably fall asleep on stage. Right. Uh, that is one issue with comedy. It's so late at night. So for those of us that work traditional jobs during the day, mm. it's tough um, managing both. Yeah. Well, I guess it's a heck of a, a filter. It's a way of weeding out um, the older talent, huh? I mean, again, I'm it in is. my 50s. There's no way uh, yes. I could stay up, I don't think. And and I'm wondering I, how I would be on. How do you manage, yes, Kelly? Yes, I. it's very tough. I started at age 38 okay. in Atlanta. Wow. And it was virtually all men in their early 20s. Sure. That were doing it. And... um it's even tougher for me now because I'm also fighting cancer and chemo makes you so tired. So it, it is very difficult for me right now to stay up on a Wednesday night till midnight. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. And for my audience who doesn't know, Kelly um, was recently diagnosed with colon cancer stage four. Am I right, Kelly? You are correct. And you've undergone uh, quite a bit of treatment, and you got some maybe not so great news lately. Yes. So when I was first diagnosed, I did have colon cancer, mm -hmm. and it had already spread to my liver. I had wow. 15 tumors all over my entire liver. Oh, my. So I was given a really bad prognosis that this was too far gone. There was not going to be a way to beat this. Um. And I really had to advocate for myself. I had to switch hospitals. And uh, yeah, so I have gone through 26 rounds of chemo, mm. five rounds of radiation, and three major surgeries. The last one included getting 80% of my liver cut off. Oh my. So my liver regrew, but there's some new tumors there. So I'm going back on chemo this Friday. Oh and I'm going to do chemo for a few months. And luckily, my liver surgeon said, if they're still there, he'll burn them off. How about that? So I am optimistic yet again. Of course. That I will beat this. Wow. That's a lot, Kelly. It is a lot. <laughs> but I don't need to tell you, um, and it's certainly no joking matter, but let me ask you a, a serious question. And it may sound tongue-in-cheek, but... Um, you know, being a fighter of cancer, do you believe there are things that shouldn't be joked about that are just too taboo? I mean, would you would you share your story on stage with someone that you have cancer? Yeah, so right now, mm -hmm. about 90% of my jokes are about me fighting stage four cancer. Is that right? For, yes. For me... Comedy has always been <laughs> very narcissistic. Okay. I just tell stories and jokes about my life. Sure. And this is what I'm dealing with right now. And there's a lot that is funny and just crazy about this cancer prognosis and trying to beat it. So, yeah, I do talk about that, joke about it. But for me... There are plenty of areas that I don't think are funny to talk about. Mm -hmm. I really do abide by the rule. Mm -hmm. As a comedian, we should be, be 
punching up and not down. I see. So I punch up at like societal issues, mm-hmm. insurance companies, um, you know, stupid things that people say. Right. But I don't make fun of fellow cancer victims or things like that. Right. I don't think that's funny. You know, <clears throat> recently, um, some of the old guard in comedy, I'm thinking specifically about the white cisgendered men who've gotten in a, a bit of trouble lately, have used as at least partial, a partial excuse that, you know, there's a mob mentality, a woke mob mentality. I guess mm-hmm. what we used to refer to flippantly as being too politically correct, to use Bill Maher's term from his show that he was canned from years ago. Uh, what would you say to a comedian who says, you know what, comedy is just, it's gotten too hard. I mean, people don't appreciate good comedy anymore. They don't, they don't understand that it's just a joke, especially maybe college uh, campuses. What would you say to that? So this is a common complaint. <laughs> And I have an unpopular opinion. So let's Our hear job it. as a comedian <laughs> yeah. is to make people laugh. Right. So if you get a job on a college campus, your job is to make those 20-year-olds laugh. And what happens is these old school comedians, they just want to tell racist, homophobic jokes. Ah, and 20-year-olds are not going to laugh at that. So 20-year-olds are not woke. <laughs> They just don't laugh at racism and homophobia. I see. So my experience is that comedians that complain about audiences are too woke, in my opinion, they're just telling hack jokes. And and 20-year-olds don't laugh at that hack material. Do you think, so it's, do you think I, it's because they're lazy? Or not, not the 20-year-old. Do you think it's because some of these comedians – are lazy. They're not doing new material. They're not trying as They're hard as they want to. They're not doing new material. I see. They're just trying this. Recycle the old stuff. You know, recycled. Let's tell, you know, funny accents and try to make that. That funny. you know, say that's humor. Let's mm. make fun of rape victims. Right. I mean, they yeah. So that's my experience. The comics that complain about this woke mentality. Mm-hmm. They're just, they're not telling jokes. They're saying offensive things and they've convinced themselves they're edgy. Yeah. But you're just saying offensive things with no punchlines. And you That's know, maybe not they, comedy. And maybe they, they get laughs from time to time, but I wonder how many of those laughs are just cringy anxiety um, produced laughs, right? Because if, I, and if the I'm reality- cringed or if I'm freaked out by something, sometimes I laugh. Even though it's not funny, I'm uncomfortable. And the reality is there are racist and homophobic people that go to comedy shows. Right. So So they will laugh at that. Yeah. But But you can't assume everyone's going to be. Is college students do not find racist, homophobic jokes funny. I see. I don't think that makes them like woke or they don't have a sense of humor. Right. They just. They just don't find that stuff funny. Yeah. I completely get it. That makes total sense to me, Kelly. That makes total sense. So 
have you found that having a background in psychology in particular has helped or affected in any way your comedy? I think that it has in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. You know this, Jason, as a comedian. I I mean, as a professor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes Uh, I don't know the difference. (laughs) (laughs) You know, our job is to get 35 or more students to pay attention to us yes. for an hour and 20 minutes or sometimes two hours and 40 minutes. Right. So I do think that helped me to get on stage and try to get an audience to pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. And I do think the topics that we cover as psychology professors does look at, you know, these societal problems and, and problems with human behavior. So we're already talking about that stuff. Right. So then to try to make it funny, I think is a little bit easier. Yeah. Because these are topics we're already addressing in our job. Yeah. And maybe it's a little unfair, right? We have an unfair advantage if we start out. We do uh, have an unfair as, advantage. As a college professor working <laughs> hand in hand day by day with these young students. And then we try to pivot to comedy. Maybe it's a little easier because we understand what punching down looks like. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Critics are raising questions about Hassan Minaj and whether he and other uh, comedians should be more truthful with their materials. Minaj's act often includes experiences that he says he's faced as an Asian American and Muslim American. But the comedian tells The New Yorker many of those stories either didn't happen to him or they were embellished. So there's been some uh, controversy lately uh, about Mr. Hassan Minaj, is it Minaj or Minaj? Yes, yes. Uh, allegedly making up stories on stage. You want to talk about that a yes. little bit for our audience? I think this goes so, it goes sort of hand in hand with maybe not punching down, but certainly not um, giving your audience more credit for their intelligence, right? Right. So he's gotten in trouble for two longer jokes in particular. Mm-hmm. And one of them when he was a teenager – And he talked about how this FBI agent kind of was secretly at his mosque. Oh, wow. And he befriended this FBI agent. And then he had another long story of where someone sent him anthrax. And his baby daughter was exposed to the anthrax. So both of these stories are not true. Okay. And so this is where the backlash is coming from. Now, when he told the stories, he played it like it was true and never disabused anyone of it. There was no punchline at the end that made it clear he was just kidding. Correct. Wow. These were told as personal stories. Now, he's arguing that it's – he has experienced racism. Sure. And these things happen to other people. So he's just kind of incorporating it with his own experiences Mm -hmm. and that he sees it as slightly embellishing what's happened to him. Hmm. So a lot of comics are defending him. They're saying as comics, we can say whatever we want. As long as it's funny, it doesn't matter. So yes, we can exaggerate perhaps, but even make up a story that never happened to us. Hmm. Right. That's where the argument is. Like, 
it was he wrong for telling two stories as if it happened to him mm. that actually didn't happen? Yeah, I mean, going back to your cancer diagnosis, would it be appropriate for someone to say they were diagnosed with, with stage four cancer and that not be true? I would be horrified <laughs> if I found out a comedian claimed they had stage four cancer and they don't. All right. It sounds like what we call malingering, right? In clinical yes. psychology. Yes. And we don't. Correct. We're not too kind when we hear stories like that. Um, I remember being right. a kid and seeing the jar in the convenience stores with, with kids faces on them. And allegedly the kid has cancer and they're basically, you know, soliciting coins to help. And, I remember asking my mom once, I was like, does this little girl have cancer? Is she really sick? And my mom would say, absolutely. No one would lie about that. And my mom would <laughs> throw would a couple hope. of coins yeah. in. Well, of course, you, you would hope. Wow, okay. And for so, the yeah, audience that don't so know Hassan, he is a, a very popular comedian, right? I mean, he's, he's... He is. And he hosted a political show that addresses you know, racial issues that we have in our country. Mm. So that's kind of, for me, where this, the thorn kind of is, mm -hmm. because I feel like now he's going to lose credibility right. with his audience because essentially he just lied on stage about being a victim of racism. Right. And yeah, an how extreme do you have it both example. Ways? Mm -hmm. Right. So I am disappointed, but I am in the minority as a comedian and many comedians say we can say whatever we want on stage wow. we are jokers mm. so they don't see they don't have any issue with what he did so i mean do you believe there's a social responsibility when grabbing that mic and standing in front of 100 uh, or 200 people kelly i absolutely like do. do yeah i do i think well, I love comedians mm -hmm. that talk about their real lives, sure. talk about issues that we have in society. So I'm disappointed he completely lied mm -hmm. about that. Yeah. And it may not be the best analogy, but if I got on stage right. and said I was sexually assaulted mm. when I wasn't, right. but used the argument, well, hey, one in three women are sexually assaulted. So I'm dealing with this very important issue. Or you perhaps have been harassed before in the, in the past, right? Right. So you're just... Because when I leave comedy clubs, I have been harassed many times by men. It's very scary. But I would never get on stage and say that that person attacked me when that didn't happen. Right. I would... I find that very irresponsible. Well, you know... But this is... Go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, this is kind of Hassan's argument. Mm. He would say that I could say that I was sexually assaulted since one in three women are, wow. and that I, that's my way of addressing it, but I would never do that. And I guess at the end of the day for these people, I'm assuming mostly men, um, it's about getting the laugh, right? If you got the laugh, then the, right. then the means justify are justified by the end. Or the end is just and that's what a lot of comedians are arguing. Mm. Like our only job is to make people laugh. So however you can do it, it's fine. 
I mean, I suppose that would be easier in some cases, right? It would. It, it's certainly a shortcut. Um, I, I can't imagine going into a classroom and making up stories about anything, research or patients or otherwise. Um, yeah, right. It, it would be no matter so how tempting it would be, right? To just get a a quick and easy example across. I mean, don't get me wrong. I do make up examples, but I say let's take a hypothetical, right? I mean, how hard Correct. is that to say? You know, let's pretend or let's take a hypothetical. And I agree with you that comedians can do that. Of course. You can set up these wildly hypothetical situations, and he could have done that. Mm -hmm. It Again, it would have taken maybe just a little more effort, and you'd have to be a little more clever about it. Correct. But what it tells me, it seems, is that they understand the importance of authenticity, right? <laughs> if you're not starting your jokes off by saying, let's take a hypothetical, let's pretend— and instead you're talking about things as if they actually happen to you, then you're kind of communicating, look, authenticity matters. But then you turn right around and, and have to admit, I guess, that it was a lie. Right. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's strange. It's going to be interesting to see how this affects his career moving forward. Mm. Because especially if you host a political show yeah. about racism – Hmm. And you've been just making up stories on, on, on your, you know, comedy specials. Right. That, you, you know, about your daughter was poisoned hmm. by a racist and it didn't happen. I'm just, I, I'm curious to see what's going to happen. I think he's going to lose a lot of viewers. Well, Kelly, let's take a short break, and on the other side, we'll come back and uh, continue the conversation. You're listening to Put Them Sounds on the Couch. Great. And chemo for life, and you just do chemo as long as you can survive. And... Um, I just kind of told her that this cannot be my only option. Um, I, when I was in fifth grade, there was an amazing show that came on TV called Golden Girls. And even though I was 11, I fell in love with Dorothy. And I knew I was going to be Dorothy when I grew up, a grumpy elderly woman. Uh, that's sarcastic. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, with our guest, Kelly Spillman, a comedian and a psychology professor from L.A., Kelly, yes. on the other side, we uh, were talking about a variety of things related to your life as a stand-up comedian and stand-up comedy in general. Um, there clearly has been an evolution um, since maybe the days you and I were both growing up to where we are now. I'd like for you to maybe speak to the audience about this, these, some of these changes that have taken place with audiences, with comedians with sort of the expectations sure yeah so i think there has definitely been a shift in the traditional like setup punchline mm. like the rodney danger old please take my wife or yeah kind of thing <laughs> So that's been one shift where comedy has become a lot more personal. Okay. 
where stand-ups really talk about their life. And I think, you know, going back 30, 40, 50 years ago, that really wasn't the case. Yeah. Like, you know, no one even knows if Phyllis Diller really had a husband named Fang. Right. <laughs> so that's definitely a big shift where I think we're seeing a lot more vulnerability in a lot of comedians today sure. and really showing who they are, how they see the world. I think that's been a huge shift. You know, I, I must admit, I've watched quite uh, a few of your sets since we uh, connected uh, for, for my audience um, who might be interested in Kelly and I join, I guess some of the same um, online groups during the pandemic. Perhaps you were a member of these groups before I, but I, um, I joined and, and met Kelly online uh, in some of these uh, psychology groups, uh, the teaching of yes. psychology in particular during the pandemic. And um, we just started, you know, our acquaintance then. But having followed Kelly's journey uh, a little bit over the past couple of years, I can say that Kelly's comedy is um, very different than what I was used to as a kid. In particular, I noticed, Kelly, you're much more of a storyteller. Um, and I'm not saying Correct. there weren't storytellers when I was growing up, because I think in some respects, um, even Eddie Murphy told stories, but um, you're definitely a storyteller, it seems, almost first. What would you say to that? You are correct. And when I started in Atlanta, there were other comedians <laughs> who didn't even feel like I was a stand-up. Oh, wow. Because I have always been a storyteller, mm -hmm. which does kind of go against that set-up punchline Get but in and get out, yeah. that's what I like about stand-up because like you're saying, there are people historically who were storytelling like Eddie Murphy mm -hmm. and even Dave Chappelle and sure. Chris Rock, they do tell stories. Right. And um, a big one for me is Mike Birbiglia mm. because he really is a storyteller. Yeah, first and foremost, yeah. But, but he's got the punchlines of a stand-up. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that has always been my style since I started. And do you find that's a little more difficult for you, for you, Kelly, or for your audiences to sort of pay attention, you know, particularly with audiences who might have a, a less than stellar attention span? Is that harder to tell a, a little bit longer story and, and set up your punchline slower and more gradual? It is. Yeah. Uh, and especially when you're first starting, because you only get five minutes. Right. <laughs> and so when I first started, it would just be a one five-minute story. How about that? But you're right. If the audience isn't into it, it's a very painful five minutes. Yeah. So now I try to get them down to like 45 seconds to a minute. Okay. Okay. But it is still a storytelling process or, or whatever you want to call right, it. Right, right. So I know that is a little bit different from other comedians who do tell these jokes that don't really go together. Mm -hmm. They just kind of transition from one joke to the next. Right. That's right. not my style. Yeah. Well, I asked you on the other side about how, you know, psychology informed your comedy. So I guess I should ask the other way. Um, how has comedy 
uh, change the way, if any, you approach teaching psychology to college students? I mean, do you do you do stand up in the classroom? Would you consider your position <laughs> as a psychology professor entertainment in some way? Like, I how would you describe do, it? and even before I became a stand up, I do view teaching as let's have fun as we're learning about this very important topic, but human behavior is funny. Yeah. So it was always easy for me to find comedy, even in the psychology topics. I tend to show more video clips that are funny. Mm -hmm. I was always doing that. So yeah, I do think humor is a way to get people engaged and interested in a topic. I see. So continuing with uh, that conversation about psychology, tell the audience a little bit about yourself as a psychology professor. Like, how did you get into psychology? Did you always know you wanted to be a psychology professor? Um, I'm assuming you have psych so, degrees or something related. Yes. So this is interesting. Like many of our students, mm -hmm. I really was kind of this lost soul in college. Oh, wow. Now, I had seen Silence of the Lambs, <laughs> so I wanted to be an FBI agent, just like Clarice Starling. Oh, the profiler, yes. Yes. So, and you know from teaching psychology, there's so many shows now about these profilers. Yes. So we get a lot of students that want to do this. On, yeah, on Netflix, yes. Correct. So I majored in psychology, but I wanted to get into the FBI. Okay. So it's my senior year. FBI comes to comes to Florida State to do interviews, oh my. but they would only interview people fluent in Mandarin Chinese or accounting majors. Yeah. So I was devastated. You're like, there's that darn math again coming back to haunt <laughs> the me. The math, right? Uh, this is why I'm so comfortable leaving this earth and leaving my daughter on the earth. She loves math. I'm like, that's it. That's all I ever wanted, baby. <laughs> was a daughter and or a son who loved math. Oh, God knows yes. it's been hard so, without it throughout my career. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know from now teaching statistics, we are not alone. No. Most college students dread math. No, that's right. That's right. And rarely ever do we have a psych major in our research methods or stats class that likes math. They're always so correct or even research methods right. is my experience as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so uh, I then decided I wanted to be a therapist. Mm -hmm. So I got a master's in counseling and I was going to try to get a doctorate in psychology, but it is so competitive. Right. And where I was going in grad school, the, the year I was working on my master's, the first year, they only accepted one person into their PhD program yeah, for tough. counseling psychology. Very tough. So it became very clear to me as I started looking at other colleges, I was not going to be the one <laughs> picked for a PhD program. Yeah. And yeah. so then I just, and then I was, I worked in as an addictions counselor. And I don't think I was very good at that either, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> and I had never done drugs. 
And I do see the argument that maybe a history in dealing with addiction prepares you better to be an addictions counselor. Yeah. So then I just kind of fell into teaching at a community college. Sure. And I was good at it. And then I finally, it's so hard to find a full-time position, but one opened up where I was an adjunct and I got it and um, loved it. And then I got into stand-up and became very good at that. So I walked away from my full-time teaching position and moved to LA. And I was not able to get a full-time position out here. So like many, I now adjunct at a few colleges while pursuing comedy as well. Yeah. But I still love teaching psychology. It, it's definitely something I'm good at. I think it's easier for us than math teachers yeah. to find real life events, to describe psychological concepts. And so, yeah. Well, a little inside uh, history about me. The three things I'm, I most wanted to be growing up, uh, first was a trash man. My mom said that I constantly <laughs> talked about it. I wanted to ride alongside the trash truck. I'm not sure that I understood what that entailed. I just saw men riding on the side of the truck, and, and that obviously spoke to me. The next thing I wanted to be, and that was probably middle school, was a magician, but I didn't think I had the dexterity <laughs> with which to shuffle the cards the, the way that magicians do. And then... Finally, when I was in college, um, I really got into comedy, not doing it, but watching a lot of it, telling jokes to my friends. And I thought, man, that would be the thing. Stand-up comedy would, would be it. So I did the next best thing. I became a college professor. And I, I like <laughs> you, get to uh, you know joke around with my students. I don't know that I try material out. Um, and if I am trying material out, it's not <laughs> working. Uh, do you ever try, <laughs> right. do you ever try your new material out on your students? You know, I don't, mm -hmm. I, but I used to never tell my students I did comedy. Okay. So when I taught in Georgia, cause I didn't want to get in trouble at my college for being a comedian, it was just something I did on my own. Oh, wow. Although I always use my real name. Mm -hmm. Some people that work in professional environments go by a stage name. I didn't even think to do that. So. Oh, well, that was actually a <laughs> so question I, I had down was to ask you what your stage name was, if any. But yeah, it's just Kelly it Stillman. didn't even occur to me, but I see why you would use a different name on stage. Right. But it didn't even occur to me to do that. Yeah, depending on what your day so job is. So I just use my real name. So now that I'm open in L.A. to my students, they always beg me <laughs> to tell them jokes but a key to comedy is it's got to be the right atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So a joke you tell in a dark comedy club, in my opinion, yeah, is not always going to work in a classroom at 11 a.m. Right. Which is why I didn't ask you to do, you know, uh, a 45 second joke for our listeners, because I knew that that's probably <laughs> inappropriate. Yeah, it just doesn't always translate. Yeah. It's kind of like when your friend tells you a joke yeah. that they heard, it's almost never funny, is it? <laughs> almost never. <laughs> Unless, again, we've been drinking or, you know, yes. there's something else about the context that allows it to be funny. 
Maybe, right. You know, oh, it, it connects with a story we also remember about that person. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and that's sometimes an they're issue surprised, right? Comedians like, have because they're funny at their job. Yeah. And they think that's going to translate to the stage. And but, they don't realize we know our coworkers. Yes. We have a shared environment. Yes. It's easier to make those people laugh. Absolutely. To make strangers laugh is much more difficult. Well, and your students are paying, right? They're paying for the class. You've got their grade in right. their hand, at least they think. And so, of course, they're going to laugh. Um, that doesn't mean you're funny. No. Go down to the exactly. local comedy club and try your hand at stand-up with, you know, 20 or 30 kind of grumpy people uh, as they've only Correct. had one beer, right? Do you find that right. um, you're funnier earlier or later in the night, Kelly? This is a very good question. <laughs> Thank and you. And many comics hate to go up early. Hmm. I am an exception because the longer the show goes on, mm -hmm. there's more that there's more mishaps that can happen. <laughs> How so? So in a way it is true that the the longer the show goes on, it the 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 crowd can laugh more. But as people continue to drink, uh, this can become problematic. Yeah, they can become a harder and, sell, right? And <laughs> if the comics before you aren't funny, people can leave the show. Ah, I so see. I was just on a show recently that I went up ninth, and five of the comics before me kept walking, members in the audience, and I was so angry. Because there's no one left by the Because there were only, there. there were six people left. Oh, my gosh. And I didn't walk any of them, thank goodness. Yes. But I wish I'd been able to go up earlier when there were 20 people there. Yes. Now, during the pandemic, I'm assuming you didn't get to play comedy clubs as much. Uh, did in you do LA, stuff over Zoom? Or what, what every happened? comedy club closed for yeah. two years. And so, so we moved were... it online. Wow. I did it. It was not fun. Mm. And most comics hated it. Well, you but know, it was the only way to get jokes out. Well, I often wondered why is it that every time I watch a comedy stand-up special, right, that they seem to be recorded in front of a live audience. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't actually need the live audience. I think this person's funny, you know, no matter what. But I guess, um, and, and maybe you can give us some clarification on this. It's not just about the audience. It's also about the performer, right? You've so got to be having fun you, and you need the as feedback. As the performer, get so much energy from the audience. Mm. And that's why Zoom was so hard. Yeah. Because people were in black boxes on mute. Mm. You couldn't hear any laughs. And as a performer, if you're telling jokes to silence, mm -hmm. you can't help but get self-conscious. So no comic is going to film a special to nobody. You need those laughs to get you through the hour. Yeah, that I makes... can't imagine any comic that could do an hour of jokes to silence and have that filmed. And yet we were being asked to do an hour worth of lecture synchronously to black boxes on Zoom throughout the pandemic. Correct. I remember not being how allowed. how many professors yeah, I, were miserable. They were. In fact, I think I including probably... Including myself. I probably got the jobs I got during the pandemic because I was willing to risk that. I was working at Cal State and University of North Carolina Wilmington during the pandemic. 
probably because I was willing to risk it and chance it. But most of the time Correct. I was talking to a black box or many black boxes um, and students, but you're they didn't have up- their cameras on. They weren't allowed. I mean, excuse me. They weren't made to. You couldn't mandate it. We couldn't make them no, do it. No. But you just – I'm so glad to hear you did this. Yeah. Because to truly make it in comedy or as a professor, mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to be willing to take those risks and still believe in ourselves even if we're getting no energy from the audience. I mean that really is the key, and that's why most of us fail. Because yeah, it's so yeah. difficult. It's difficult. And that's why you were able to get those jobs. Yeah. Because most professors can't teach to silence. They weren't willing to horrible. even try it, no. In fact, I mean, they probably weren't willing to give up what reputation they'd already earned either. Um, that that Correct. was a big part of it as well. I had a pretty good reputation in the classroom. And so am I going to be willing to put myself out like that on Zoom? And I wasn't super familiar with the technology or you know, you, we didn't always have great mics. I mean, the mics we had, we had to buy right. our own and didn't have audio interfaces. So, yeah. I. But I this says a lot about you. And I think this is a good life lesson for any job hmm. is to really learn the technology that's new. Yeah. And take risks. Yeah, And it is. just try it. Yeah. Um, and you saw a lot of professors weren't willing to do that. No, many of them retired. Many of them just stepped completely. They did. Out. Yeah. And this is the key, I think, not just for psychology teaching or comedy. We always have to adapt. And I just think if you can have that skill, you're going to go very far in life. Yeah, I think that's good advice. So, Kelly, two more questions before we wrap up here. Um, oh, great. One is a, a fun one, I think, and the other one is a very serious one. So um, okay. we'll start with the fun one. What's the strangest place you've ever done comedy or done psychology for that matter? <laughs> uh, so in Atlanta, my nickname was the comedy crackhead oh because my I God. truly would do comedy anywhere. So <laughs> I would do bowling alleys. Uh, here's a I think a funny comedy story. So I did a show in Atlanta in front of the Decatur courthouse on the sidewalk. Oh my God. And gosh. we literally had a megaphone, a busker, and we each had 10 minutes. And it was a horrible experience. <laughs> and so no one was getting laughs. People wouldn't even stop to watch. And there was actually a wedding going on on the lawn of the courthouse. Oh my so God. So I made the decision to pretend that the groom was my ex. (laughs) And I even had my dog with me. And so I did 10 minutes of just riffing through the microphone to this groom, which is so inappropriate. I hope it didn't ruin his wedding. (laughs) However, just doing real jokes, it was clear that was not gonna work. Impossible. Well, here's a great lesson. Someone who ran a huge, art festival was there that day walking down the sidewalk oh my and he later hired me to headline that arts festival did he really (laughs) and i got to do 30 minutes because he just thought that was so funny that i had all these jokes that the groom was my ex and he left me and the dog so you never know who's watching. That's true. So just always try your best. Even an audience of one can be life-changing, can it? Yes, yes. 
Well, that thing sets so up. So that was a yeah, go ahead. A weird place to do comedy, but it was a ended up being a win for me. Yeah, yeah. So that sets up the final question, I think, nicely. What advice would you give uh, someone who's thinking about starting a career in comedy? First of all, I highly recommend everybody try it. <laughs> I want to, though, say it is very, very hard work. You have to have very tough skin. Mm. <laughs> but you it is a huge learning curve. So just to get up there and do your five minutes is a win. What you should do if you want to do comedy, in my opinion, Find open mics in your city, record your sets, actually try to write out jokes and it's hard and you, and you can try some things out on stage and just mumble through it and see if you stumble onto some jokes, <laughs> but you need to record your sets, listen to where the laughs were. And then you just, if you had like two minutes that you ranted about Costco, listen to where the laughs were and see if you can get that two minutes down to a minute, down to 30 seconds, and just keep going at it. It's gonna take a long time, but if you keep doing that, you will get refined jokes and you can build a set that way. And never give up, it's hard. Comedians are not the friendliest people. It's a very lonely road, <laughs> but, Always be polite to people. If you've got five minutes, only do five minutes. Be professional. And you'll be surprised how quickly you can get on book shows. Um, find if there's an actual comedy club in your city. It probably has an open mic. Uh, and just keep doing that. The booker will eventually see you. And if you're good enough, you will get booked at the club. There is a path, um, but you have to put in the work. And most people in a lot of things don't want to put in the work. Yeah. And that's true with comedians. The vast majority of comedians do not do the work it takes to develop a true set. So you've got to put in the work. Wonderful final words from a wonderful guest, Kelly. <laughs> just exciting stuff and I'm so happy for you and um, my audience and I will all be thinking good thoughts putting in good prayers for you as you continue to battle this cancer thing I know you're going to beat it you've got the right Thank attitude you. Uh, Kelly um, one final thing for those in my audience that want to hear more about your story hear more of your storytelling uh, check you out perhaps doing stand-up uh, is there a, a website or somewhere you could plug? Sure. Um, I'm on most of the social media channels. Just my name, Kelly Spillman. Twitter um, and uh, Facebook, Instagram. So I always post my flyers on YouTube. Just look for Kelly Spillman. I've got uh, clips of my sets. So I'm always promoting my stuff on social media. And I would love for people, if you're in L.A., Come to one of my shows. I would love it. <laughs> well, the fourth most common listener I have, Kelly, is California. So, um, fantastic. I have, a, I have a, a, a small audience in California, clearly. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, Kelly, thanks again for your time. I appreciate you sharing your story. And uh, 
I hope we talk again soon. Yeah, this was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly.